All right, well, good morning, church. So we're going to go over two chapters this morning. We're going to go over chapter 32 and 33. But don't fear. Right, yeah, yeah. It's less verses than what we did last week, even though it's two chapters combined. So last week was like 55 verses. This morning it's going to be 52 verses. So that means just easy peasy. And if we don't get through it all, then we'll just pick it up next Sunday. So we can divide these uh, uh, two chapters into three sections. And basically you have the, uh, the pre-wrestling, and then you have the main event, which is God wrestling Jacob, and then you have the post-wrestling. And uh, the reason we're going to take all these, both of these chapters at once is that the main event with Jacob wrestling God it's not a standalone event. And what I mean by that is, is, is what happened pre-wrestling is just as important as what happens post-wrestling, and they're all tied in to the fact that Jacob wrestled God when Jacob was alone, right? When he, after he had sent his family across the stream, and he was just sitting there by himself waiting in fear for the coming of Esau. So let's read Genesis chapter 32 and 33, and we'll get on into it. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now, and I have oxen, donkeys, flock, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, they may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. With only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewes and 20 rams and 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same things to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. 22, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed, Peniel, limping because of his hip. And therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Chapter 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. And then Leah with her children and Rachel went... And Rachel and Joseph last of all, and he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the servants drew near, and they and their children, and they bowed down, and Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and at last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And then he urged him, and he took it. And then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock, and therefore the name of this place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you just speak this to us, that your words be spoken, that you speak into our hearts and just draw us closer to you. And I thank you, Lord, for your presence here today. And I thank you, Lord, for the fact that you love us and you love us greatly and that you will do what it takes for us to surrender our lives to you so that you can do great things through us and in our lives. We just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So basically where we picked up the story is Jacob had just escaped from Laban. And it wasn't escape, really. And, and they made a pact, if you remember, right? So they made a covenant. They drew a line of swords, they, and they said, 
you know, neither one of us is going to cross this line. You're not going to cross that way. I'm not going to cross this way. And if any one of us breaks this covenant, if any one of us crosses this line, then God help him, right? Because we're going to shoot first and ask questions later. Because they didn't have really any respect. They didn't trust each other. They had no respect for each other. So don't cross this line. So Laban leaves and goes home. They agreed to this covenant. Laban leaves and goes home. And Jacob went on his way, and it tells us right away, verse 1, that the angels of God met him. Now, I don't know what that looked like, but it had to have been absolutely amazing. Because it's not often we get to see the angels of God in their magnificent glory in this way. It had to have been a magnificent sight. I mean, this was God's host. It was God's army, right? His camp, as it's translated here in the ESV. So Jacob names it Mahan Ayim, which means two camps, which there was two camps, right? There was Jacob's camp, and then there was God's camp, because Jacob saw this camp of angels, this, this army of angels that had surrounded him. And Jacob at that time, just like when Jacob first met God at Bethel, and he was like, wow, I've, I've found the door to God's house. I've, you know, I, I stumbled upon the front porch, so to speak. I didn't know it was here. I didn't know God was with me. He named that place Beth- Bethel, which means house of God. Well, here he's like, wow, <laughs> I didn't know this army of angels was with me. I mean, Jacob discovered that there was an angelic troop there to protect him. Right? I mean, that's a confidence booster. I mean, if you could see the angels with your eyes, when you were going into situations that you dreaded or you feared, and you could see them with you, you would have a lot more confidence, would you not, going into that situation? You'd be like, I don't have any problems going in. You know, bring it on. I'm not scared. Did you guys see who was with me? But you don't. You don't see them. But here, God, like, you know, he kind of like pulled back the curtain for Jacob. Let me just give you a peek, Jacob, of who's protecting you. I told you I was going to protect you. I told you I was going to provide for you. I told you I was going to see you back home. Let me just show you. Let me just pull back this curtain really quick and you can see. And so these angels of God, they met him. And Jacob saw this army of God. He was just absolutely amazed. Right? I mean, in Romans 8.31, it tells us, you know, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's that's a true, true statement that I wonder how, how often we understand it. Angels are, are real. Right? We've kind of talked about that before. They're not the little precious moment figurines that you can go buy at Hallmark. Right? That's not an accurate representation of an angel. When Daniel saw an angel of God, he was so scared he, he fainted. If we saw an angel, we would probably do the same. Right? If not, just die right on the spot. You know, we'd give up the ghost. And that would be, you know, but angels are real. The Bible tells us that we entertain the angels without knowing it, which is really kind of freaky because we have to kind of go back and like, how, how many times have I done that? Right? Who is it that I entertained that was an angel and I wasn't aware? But it tells us that we have entertained angels without knowing it. It tells us in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are ministering spirits. They're sent out to serve for the sake of those or to, who are to inherit salvation, which is you. Angels are ministering spirits for those who have their faith in Christ Jesus. They're sent out to serve you, which is where we get the idea of, um, you know, our little angels that follow us around and protect us, Right? Because there's these angels, that's what they do. They're ministering servants for us. 
Remember, guys know who David Wilkerson is? He's the guy who wrote Crossing the Switchblade. You guys remember Crossing the Switchblade, right? I know that was a while ago. For some of us, right? Crossing the Switchblade was a book, you know, that was a long time ago. I read that thing when I was a kid. He tells this story. Um, and, you know, he ministered a lot to, to the rough and tough and gangs and, and the youth and, and, and stuff like that. And he got himself in some hairy situations doing that. And because uh, not all of them, you know, liked him. And he tells a story about one night where uh, they, they met him. You know, he's walking home at night or something like that. And this group of kids come up to rob him or beat him up or whatever they were going to do. And, uh, and he, he, he tells a story how they, how they, you know, kind of just came out and they're in front of him and he stopped and, and they look at him and then all of a sudden they get this look of terror on their face and they all just run off. They just run. And, and he looked around and he's like, am I that scary? I don't, right? Because there's, there's no, he didn't see anybody. He didn't see anything. He just said, thank you, Jesus, and went on his way. But as it is, when you're someone like him who's ministering to those kids, eventually you meet these kids later on. And he did. He met one of these kids who was part of that group that tried to rob him that night, that night later on. And that kid, and he were just were talking about that. And that kid's like, listen, I remember that night clearly. I have one question to ask you. And he, David was like, what? He's like, who was that guy with you? And David's like, what are you talking about? I was there alone. He's like, no, you weren't. He said, there was some giant, huge guy. He said, he was standing right, he was like eight feet tall, and he was standing right behind you, and he looked like he could literally rip our arms off and beat us over the head with them. He said, we were so scared we ran off. I just want to know, who was that guy? And Dave was like, I don't know. There was no one with me. And then later he was just like, it had to have been an angel. It had to have been an angel. Looking out for him. Scared the hoodlums off, right? They ran and hid in the dark. You guys have read 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha, with his servant, you know, they wake up in the morning and they go out and there's a there's an army with horses and chariots that surrounded the city, and they think, oh, you know, the servant's like, Elisha, my master, what are we going to do, right? We're surrounded by the enemy. How are we going to get out of this? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. For, the, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, and he says, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he can see. And the servant, the Lord opened the eyes of the servant. And he looked, and behold, and he says, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That was God's army, his angelic host, there to protect, protect Elisha. It was an army of angels. Even Jesus said in Matthew 26, he says, do you, think that I can, do you know that I can appeal to my Father and he'll at once send more than 12 legions of angels? got an army, we've got a legion on our side. So this had to be a magnificent experience for, for Jacob. And coming off such a, a scary moment where he, he literally was sort of running for his life from Laban. He had to sneak out. He was hoping Laban wouldn't catch him because he knew that Laban probably wanted to harm him. But yet he got through that. 
Then to turn around and God gives them a little peek behind the curtain and says, hey, here's what's protecting you. This angelic host, this angelic army. He's like, whoa. And you have those moments. We call those mountaintop experiences. Right? We call those mountaintop experiences. So seeing this army of angels was a mountaintop experience for Jacob. Now, we've probably all experienced mountaintop experiences in one way or another, right? That's the moment when we experience God in such a way that our hair stands on end, we get goosebumps, right? Maybe we, tears start to flow, right? It's a moment we don't want it to end. We want to keep experiencing it. It's a spiritual high. It's an emotional and spiritual high. Moses literally had mountaintop experiences. I mean, how many times did he go up that mountain to talk to God? I mean, he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He got the Ten Commandments. One time when he came down from that mountain, his face was so bright from having spent time with God that it scared everyone else, right, in the camp. Peter, James, John, they had a mountaintop experience with Jesus, and Jesus transfigured, right? That was the Mount of Transfiguration, they called it, because they don't know exactly what mountain it is, so they just called it the Mount of Transfiguration, because Jesus transfigured there, right? His face shone like the sun, Right? His clothes became as white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared. That's when Peter's like, let's, let's put up tents for Moses and Elijah. This is going to be a great time. Right? That's when God spoke from heaven. Peter, shut up. He didn't say that exactly, but listen to my son. It's a good idea, Peter, but no, they don't need it. But that was a mountaintop experience. So when we describe our daily lives, we often describe it as the ups and downs of life, right? The ups, and, the ups are the mountaintop experiences, when we're closer to God, when we feel God's presence more, when it puts our hair, you know, stands up, what hair we have, and our goose, and we get the goosebumps. But the unfortunate experience of life is that then you have to come down off the mountain. We don't want to come down off the mountain, right? The, the, the downs are, you know, when we have to come down off the mountain, those experiences sometimes don't go as well. When Moses came down from the mountain, his people had melted all the gold and built a golden calf and were worshiping it. When, you know, when Peter, James, and John came down off the mountain with Jesus, the arguments broke out and the disciples were trying to cast out demons they couldn't cast out, right? And things like that. There's always a problem <laughs> when you come down off the mountain, right? So we don't want to come down after the mountain. I mean, after you've seen the glory of God on the mountaintop, after you've experienced the presence of God personally in that way, you want to stay in that moment. You want to stay there. But the reality is, is that we can go from the glory of heaven to the depths of hell in the blink of an eye. That's the reality of life. Right? As most of you know, life can be an emotional roller coaster. We have our ups and downs. So it's nice to have a shining mountaintop experience, but what happens when we descend back into real life? What happens when we get back to the reality of the world, when our spiritual high is met with, you know, sick kids, overdue bills, and the, the next work week, right? Well, we, we have God's Word. And God's Word shows us the reality of many mountaintop experiences, and we actually see the reality of a mountaintop experience right here with Jacob, because Jacob had his mountaintop experience by seeing the army of angels that was surrounding him. This should have been such an incredible confidence booster that what he did next really defies it. Because he almost, like, he forgot that what he had just seen. Because as soon as Jacob's come down, and he, he did a wise move, actually, because what he did, it was, it was really a smart move, because uh, instead of trying to sneak on by Esau, he has a little more confidence now. He's like, well, let's send the messenger ahead and tell him I'm coming. 
And the messenger comes back and says, hey, I told Esau you were coming. <clears throat> he's coming to meet you. Oh, by the way, he's bringing 400 people with him. He's bringing 400 men. And, you know, Jacob reacted just as you and I would have reacted in that same exact situation. Oh, no. Right? I'm going to die. He's coming to kill me. Do you, do you just bring 400 men just to say hello? Right? He's coming to kill me. I mean, Jacob hadn't seen Esau in 20 plus years, but the last time he saw him, Esau wanted to kill him. So Jacob ran from that, and he was hoping, you know, hey, time heals all wounds, right? It's been over 20 years. Nope, doesn't seem that way. Esau's coming to kill me with 400 people. It tells us in Proverbs 18, 19, that the brother is offended is more unyielding than a strong city. So he's got his brother to deal with. 400 people coming. So it said that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. When you read the Hebrew for greatly afraid and distressed, what it means is that he started cramping up. Right? He had a panic attack. He started getting an ulcer. His stomach was in knots. He was expecting the worst. He was expecting his brother was coming to kill him. And he seemingly had forgotten that this whole army of angels was even present. Because if he had remembered where he just came from, that experience he just had, his response should have been different. It should have been, bring it on. I have this army of angels. Let's see what Esau can do. Right? But he didn't. And sometimes this is why, because when we have a guilty conscience about things, about things that we've done personally in the past towards other people, when we have that guilty conscience, it doesn't let us see the best possible scenario. It only allows us to see the worst. And Jacob saw the worst. He, it was unimaginable to him that Esau was actually coming to greet him happily. That Esau wanted to see him, that he longed to see him, that he loved his brother. That time had healed all wounds. That was unimaginable to him. He just assumed the worst. So our faith gets crowded out by the fear. Right? Instead of remembering the, that incredibly encouraging and uplifting picture he had just seen of the army of angels, all he could see was his impending death. So immediately what he did, and it was a smart move really, it's a very tactical move. He divides his camp into, into two camps. He says, okay, let's divide everything up. So when he comes and attacks one, the other one can escape. And I'll hang out with the other one, right? You guys, you know, put you guys over here in the front. I'm going to hang in the back. We'll divide up into two camps. And when he comes, you know, if he kills you guys, we'll get away. It was a tactical move, but it was a move of fear, right? We won't all be slaughtered, just half of us. So, but then he does a good thing, which is that he prays. Showing that his, you know, we're seeing his maturity here. Instead of just running in fear, which is what he had done previously in a lot of occasions, here now he prays. And prayer is always a good move. Chuck Smith says more battles have won through prayer than any other means, right? Bring it to the Lord in prayer. So in his prayer, Jacob reminds God of his promises to protect him, right? He says, deliver me from Esau, right? Oh, God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, right? And, he, and he, goes, he says, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come to attack me. And he says at the end, I will surely do good. And he said, you told this to me, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He's like, remember what you told me? Remember God? Remember? Remember? God didn't forget, of course. God didn't need remembering. God knew exactly what he had promised Jacob. But Jacob needed to hear it again, right? And that's the thing we need to remember, because some people say that we, that we shouldn't pray like this. 
They'll teach us as a negative thing concerning this prayer. I say any prayer is good. Had Jacob not prayed, that would have been a worse situation. But Jacob prayed. They say, but he was, it was a prayer of desperation. He should have been more confident in his prayer because of God's promises. And okay, maybe. Maybe he should have been more confident. Maybe he should have remembered that he was surrounded by an army of angels. Maybe all these other things. Yes, it's possible. Maybe he should have. But any prayer is better than no prayer. And so he prays. And he reminds God of his word. But when we do that, we have to remember that we're doing that for our benefit. We're not doing it for God's benefit because God never forgot. God remembers his promises. And so when we, rem- we pray to God in desperation like that, when we pray to God and we remind him of his word, we're doing it to reassure us of his promises, right? to comfort us, to give us understanding of God's word. Right? It's for our benefit. We're praying it to God, but it's to, re- to remind us of what God said. And that's not a bad thing to do. Because we would be less fearful if we reminded ourselves of God's word more. Right? And at this point, Jacob needed some reassurance. At this point, Jacob needed some comfort. Right? I mean, he should have listened to his own prayer, but God listened to it. And God's going to answer it in a second. God is going to do what he promised, but he's just got to, got to get Jacob prepared in a sense. So Jacob has this idea to appease his brother by sending them gifts. Right? He wants to pacify him. So he divides up the cows and the sheep and the goats and the bulls and the donkeys, etc. Right? And, he, and he puts them in, in, you know, in different herds and he send, puts servants with each of the herd and he has them space out between each other and he sends them off to his brother to get them at different points and he has the servants tell his brother, hey, these are gifts from your brother looking to find favor in your sight. Right? And it shows that Jacob at least... Through this, he wants to reconcile with Esau. He wants to make peace with Esau. Esau, can, right, can, can we be at peace? Can you accept these gifts? Can we be at peace? Please don't come and kill me. Right? And of course, we've been reconciled. It tells us in, in Colossians chapter 1 that God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Right? He made peace by the blood of the cross through Christ Jesus. And through that, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation should be something... It's a ministry that we have to reconcile people to God through Christ. So we point people to Jesus. And Jacob wanted to reconcile with his brother, but really what he truly wants is to not die. That's what he truly wants. He's really, you know, he's a little panicked right now. And and so he's hoping that his brother, you know, as the quote goes, every man has a price. He's hoping that this is going to be good enough for his brother. He can buy his brother off. Jacob was, was... was seeking peace with his brother, but yet he was not at peace within himself, quite frankly, at this point. As you find out, and as we find out as we go through this, the problem here isn't Esau. Esau's not the problem. Jacob's the problem. It's all Jacob. Because he was fearful. And being fearful, he was falling back into old habits. He was thinking of how can he maneuver his way around this? How can he be possibly the old Jacob again? How can I be a little more deceiving or deceptive and squirm my way out of the situation without my brother killing me? Right? But then God showed up. And God showed up in an unexpected way. God showed up to deal with Jacob the same way that Jacob had been dealing with people almost his entire life. God 
because after Jacob sends his wives and his children across the stream, and he's just sitting there in the dark all alone with his thoughts, you know, waiting to die, in a sense, a man shows up and just starts wrestling with him. <clears throat> and of course, we understand that this man is actually God, right? A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And, and they wrestle all night until sunrise. And this had to have been the weirdest thing. I can't, I try to imagine this in my head because Jacob is just like alone by himself in his camp there in the dark. And all of a sudden a man, what, just pops out of the bushes and just runs across and grabs Jacob and throws him down and starts wrestling him. I mean, what's your response? Of course, you're going to fight back. Maybe you think it's one of Esau's men or something like that. Oh, he sent a spy to kill me or something like that. So you just start wrestling with the guy and you just wrestle all night and all night and all night. You're just wrestling with this guy, rolling around in the mud and in the water and trying to pin each other and slamming each other down. I don't know what it looked like, but it had to have been a surprise to Jacob. Someone just leaping out of the dark and starting to wrestle with him, right? And he didn't know who it was right? at first. He obviously finds out. But I don't want you to miss this one very important fact. Right? God started this whole thing. God wrestled Jacob. God initiated it. This isn't Jacob wrestling with God as in the sense that God was there and he was having a conversation and Jacob leaps across and starts wrestling with him. No, Jacob was alone by himself and God showed up and started wrestling with Jacob. Right? Don't forget that one part. Because Jacob had spent most of his adult life in one way or another right, wrestling with people. His name meant heel catcher or supplanter. He had basically wrestled with his brother in the womb. And that had carried him most of his life. He wrestled with Esau. He wrestled with Isaac. He wrestled with Laban. He wrestled basically with his two wives. So God came to wrestle with him. God heard Jacob's prayer. God said, yes, I'm going to do all those things that you reminded me of. Thank you for reminding me, Jacob. However, in order for us to do this and for me to bring those promises through, I need to get you in a different place. I need you to humble yourself a little more than you are because right now you're a little fearful and you're not trusting me how you should. So I'm just going to go down and wrestle you. Let's go work this out, Jacob. God came to wrestle Jacob so that Jacob would quit wrestling with God. Do you understand the picture? God came to wrestle with Jacob so Jacob would quit wrestling with God. Tozer says that God cannot fully bless a man until he has conquered him. And so God showed up to conquer Jacob. And he conquered him by weakening him through wrestling with him. Now, when you read this, you may think that God couldn't beat Jacob, that somehow Jacob was really an elite wrestler, right? Because it says that, that God could not prevail against Jacob. I mean, it says, it says uh, when he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. So you get this idea that like they wrestling all night. God's like, man, Jacob's really good at this. I can't seem to pin him at all. I didn't, wasn't expecting Jacob to be this good. But that wasn't really what was going on. Uh, the truth is, is that God was just allowing Jacob to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle and wrestle. Right? However long Jacob needed to wrestle for the most part. You want to keep wrestling with me, Jacob? Okay, keep wrestling. Come on, right? And it was obvious that Jacob was stubborn. He wasn't going to give up. 
was just going to keep wrestling. He wasn't getting anywhere with this guy. No one was getting anywhere, really. And that, as far as that was concerned, Jacob wasn't, wasn't, didn't have an advantage. God just kept letting him wrestle. And God could see, obviously, that Jacob's so stubborn that he's not going to stop wrestling. Right? He's not going to stop wrestling with God. So God reaches out and touches Jacob's hip socket and put it out of joint, which, by the way, is painful. Okay? And it, he basically hobbled him for life. And he did that as a reminder to Jacob. Look who's really in control here. Look who's really sovereign over this matter. It's not you. You're not winning. You're not beating me. I'm God. Right? I'm the one in control. Pop. Oh! Right? And I don't want you you know, to pass this up, but he says, God says to Jacob, let me go for, for the day is broken. And he doesn't say that because Jacob's beating him or Jacob has God pinned. God's really just saying, haven't you wrestled me long enough? Aren't you ready to stop yet? Do you seriously want to keep wrestling me? The sun's coming up. Aren't you tired yet? I, always, I have this picture, like if they were arm wrestling. They weren't arm wrestling, but if they were arm wrestling, like Jacob was using two hands. He was trying to like, he's got, he's like, oh, he's trying everything he can to like get arm and God just sitting there like that, slurping on a slurpee or something. Just, are you done yet? Are you, are you finished? Yeah. He was getting nowhere with God, but God's like, it's time to let me go. You can't pin me. You're not going to beat me. Do you want to keep this up? Do you seriously want to keep wrestling? Aren't you tired? Don't you get tired of wrestling God? Isn't there not a moment where you're tired of wrestling with God? Can you just surrender? And, and even though we don't read it right here, he says, you know, all Jacob says is, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob says that through tears, because he's in incredible pain. He says that through his brokenness. He says, I'm not going to let go unless you bless me. And we know that because it tells us in Hosea, Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 5. It says, in the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. See, when this whole wrestling thing started, when he started wrestling with God, when this guy jumped out and started wrestling, you know, Jacob was all gung-ho. He's like, I'm prepared. I'm mentally prepared for battle here. I wrestle you all night. Let's go, like Captain America or whatever. I can do this all night. You know, I can keep doing this. Right, but by the time it was over, he was begging God for his blessing because he was broken. So he had God had important work to do through Jacob, and he's going to build a nation right through him, right? And Jacob quite doesn't understand the importance of it all yet, but God says, God is helping him here understand. So God asks him, he says, what is your name? Now, of course, God knows his name, right? I mean, God knows who's he's who he's wrestling. So why does he ask Jacob his name? Well, think about this. When was the last time we saw in the Bible anybody ask Jacob what his name was? It was back in Genesis chapter 27, and it was Isaac. And Isaac said, who are you, my son? And Jacob said, my name is Esau. Now God asks him, he says, what is your name? Right? And God is saying, listen, do you want to keep wrestling with me? 
possibly trying to lie and deceive me? Do you want to keep playing these games? Or do you want to admit to me who you really are and let me give you a new beginning? Are you ready to surrender and follow me? Jacob. So Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And God says, no longer. Your name is now Israel. Israel means he strives with God. Or some say it means the one who wrestles with God. Or possibly God mastered or God prevails. The idea is that God is Lord over Jacob. And Jacob says back to him, well, what's your name? I mean, as long as we're exchanging information here. Right? And God says, why do you ask? And that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell you. It means you know who I am, so why are you asking? And that's when Jacob realized, as if he maybe, you know, if he hadn't thought of it before, I'm not wrestling with just a normal person here. I'm wrestling with God. Right? In Judges 13, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, he says, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. In Isaiah, the prophecy about the birth of Jesus, it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Right? Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Why do you ask my name? You should know it. So Jacob understands, and he names that place Penuel because he, because he says, I have seen God face to face, which is what that word means. And yet my life has been delivered. God didn't kill me. God let me live. Jacob would be permanently disabled from here on out. He could no longer run from his troubles, literally. He could no longer run from God. He now had to rely on God completely. We see that through wrestling with God, Jacob had to come to a place of surrender. He had to walk in faith and trust God with the outcome. And that outcome, what he feared greatly, right? What was he fearing? He was fearing being killed by his brother Esau. He feared the future. He didn't know what was coming. He didn't understand. He didn't have all the information yet. He just knew that his brother was coming and with 400 men, and it probably meant it was going to kill him. But we see that the outcome, that he had nothing to fear at all. Because as it tells us in verse 4 of chapter 33, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. They'd been reconciled. Right? But would this reconciliation have come without Jacob being humbled or hobbled first? Probably not in the way that it did. Right? See, Jacob's fear came because he didn't have all the facts. He just assumed that Esau was coming to kill him. Often what we fear doesn't come to pass. And often what we think is impossible becomes possible through God. Right? Nothing is impossible with God. We just need to have the faith to trust God in those matters and not fear. But in order for us to walk in faith, truly, we need to humble ourselves 
before God. We need to allow God to govern our lives. We need to fully surrender to him. We need to quit wrestling with him. We need to quit wrestling with him. See, chapter 33 ends with Jacob buying some land in Canaan. And we'll get more into this next week because we, we realize that he's not really where he's supposed to be yet. But yet he's already built a house and bought some land and, you know, he never actually goes and visits his brother. That's a whole different story. But at the end of the chapter, we see that he buys some land in Canaan. So at least he's in Canaan. He puts up an altar and he calls it El Elohi Israel, which means God of Israel. Right? God is the God of Israel. Finally, Jacob refers to God as his God. Right? He's not just the God of Abraham anymore. He's not just the God of Isaac anymore. He's not just the God of my fathers. He's now the God of Jacob. He's now the God of Israel. But look what it took to get him to that point. God had to come wrestle him. God had to come hobble him. Here's the thing. If there's one truth you can learn from this. It's real simple. It goes like this greatest thing that you can do in your life is to let God pin you. Right? Let God touch you. Don't allow yourself to get to the point where God has to break you because you aren't willing to be broken on your own. You do not need to get to this point that Jacob got to. But if you get to this point, God has no problem coming down and wrestling you. But you are not going to prevail in the sense that you think you are. God will prevail. God will humble you. So just let God pin you. Whatever it is, you're wrestling with God. If you're wrestling with God over anything right now, quit wrestling. Quit wrestling with him. He's going to let you wrestle. We see that right here. He just let Jacob wrestle and wrestle all night. Jacob wasn't getting anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere either. But ultimately, God just reached out and touched Jacob. We want God to touch us. We don't necessarily want God to hobble us. But he doesn't have any problem doing that if that's what it takes to humble you so that he can work in you and through you. He will break you if needed so that he can bless you. And often it takes him breaking us to bless us. So don't be fearful by what you don't know or what you don't fully understand. Right? Never allow the feelings that were awakened in you when you had that mountaintop experience with God evaporate when you come down from the mountain right? and live in the ordinary grain, rainy, snowy days of life. Right? Make, your, make your daily decisions in light of what you saw and learned on the mountain. Take what you felt and learned in the presence of God with you. <laughs> Don't leave it on the mountaintop. Take it with you when you come off the mountain and use it to guide you and use it to help direct you and make your decisions. Right. Be comforted by his word. Stay in his word. Let God's word direct you. Listen, you're a witness to, to the glory of God. Your life can testify to that. And that should drive you through life and its challenges. 
Because it is in our daily lives that God wants to use us to glorify Him. It is in our daily lives that God wants to use us to point others to Christ. But in order for us to, to be used, we've got to humble ourselves before God. But the good news is this. Jesus right, is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus despised the shame. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Guess what? Forgiveness, right, is found in Jesus. Eternal salvation is found in Jesus. So we just need to consider Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, as it says, so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Right? Don't grow weary. Don't wrestle with God. Just trust Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you just help us continue to work this out through our lives because there's always areas that we're wrestling with you. There's always, always areas that we just wrestle with. And you will let us wrestle. Much to our detriment. But you just want us to surrender. You just want us to give it up to you. And put our faith in just continue to follow you and let you guide us and have and for us to just trust in that. Even though we don't know what the future holds, even though we don't know what tomorrow holds, even though we have fears about what we see coming, we just trust in you. We're just going to trust in you and you're just going to see us through it. So I pray, Lord, that we just surrender those areas of our lives to you so that you can bless us. And that we can stand firm in our faith and continue to follow you and point others to Christ. I thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.